What does it really mean to have saving faith? What does that faith entail? What does it actually consist of? Well, those are some of the questions that we're going to explore today with my guest, John Piper. Along the way, we'll also hear how John himself came to saving faith in Jesus and how his view of that faith has changed over the years. As many of you know, John served for over three decades as pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis and is the founder and lead teacher of DesiringGod.org, a ministry dedicated to helping people everywhere experience a deep and abiding joy in Jesus. He's spoken at conferences worldwide and is the author of dozens of well-known books, including his newest from Crossway, What is Saving Faith? Reflections on Receiving Christ as a Treasure. Let's get started. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I'm excited. So today we're going to discuss the nature of true faith, faith that, that saves us. And, uh, but before we get into that, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you came to faith. How did you become a Christian? And what was that journey like for you? Well, it might encourage some people to know that I don't remember becoming a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) I I know some people who think that's not legitimate, that you can't be born again and not know you're born again. That's, That's crazy, they say. However, here's what I mean. My mother and father were both precious believers. They're both with Jesus now. And my mother tells me that in 1952, when I was six years old, in, uh, on vacation in Florida at a motel, my conscience was evidently working overtime and making me concerned that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior, which they had taught me was Jesus, and that I wanted to make sure that he was my Savior and that my sins were forgiven and that God would accept me as a little kid and not hold my sins against me. And we prayed, she said, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior and declared my trust in him and my allegiance to him. And and I've always taken her word for it <laughs> that that happened. But, but But here's the reason it should be encouraging, because I don't think— Our assurance hangs in the least upon being able to remember our birth. Like Mm. right now, if you said, hey, prove, Piper, that you're alive, I would not reach for my birth certificate. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I wouldn't say, here it is, proof positive, I got a birth certificate. I would say, listen, (sighs) I'm breathing, (laughs) I'm living, I'm thinking. And, And with regard to Christ, I would say, I love him. He's my Savior. I depend upon Him. He's the treasure of my life. These are the signs of life Mm. rather than being able to remember a story. And and here's another little piece of that that really matters in regard to this issue of of saving faith. A, a, A lot of people think that the people who have been born again out of the most horrific lives of sinning Um, have the clearest idea of what depravity means and what salvation means. I think that's wrong because I don't think experience can come close to teaching us about the nature of our depravity that we find in Scripture. I don't think anybody, no matter how wicked they were before they were saved, will be able to describe the wickedness of their heart without Ephesians 2, that they were dead in trespasses and sins. And so I would just say to all of us, there are no boring resurrections and therefore no boring testimonies. And uh, we have to use the Bible. We have to see in the Bible what our condition was before we were saved, what our condition is after we are saved, and we get from the Bible that line in between, which is what we want to talk about. What is the saving thing that happened in our hearts? Hmm. What do you think it is about the way that we so often 
think about salvation and conversion in particular, why are we so prone to want to be able to point to a date, to point to even a, a, a decision that we've made that we can consciously remember? Is there something to that that connects to what you're, you're arguing well, for it's in this book? Well, it's not wrong to want to do that. Frankly, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I remembered it. I'd get, I think I'd be able to give God praise with greater clarity and memory if, if I remembered. So it's not, it's not wrong to want to remember the sweetness of the work of God on the day you brought from death to life. My goodness, who would not want to, to have the fullest possible memory of that miracle? So that, that's, not a, that's not a wrong thing. Um, what goes awry, I think, is the conception of what happened to us and what mm. we did on that day. Because there, re- there really was a day when we were born again, whether you can remember it or not, because there's no— I mean, it's like, like ask, asking a woman, are you a little bit pregnant or are you a lot pregnant? I mean, pregnant is pregnant, right? And— <laughs> And you're either alive or you're not. And so you pass. There, there comes a point in life where by the Spirit you pass from death to life, from blind to seeing. And what that line consists in experientially is where we can go off the rails. And I, I grew up in a milieu where the emphasis was so heavy on making a decision for Christ. I mean, good grief. Billy Graham's magazine was called Decision. <laughs> and and my dad, who was an evangelist, called for decisions. And and I grew up in a church where you you decided for Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Goodness, I sang that. I I taught that that was my understanding. And I have come to see some limitations of mm. that view, and, and that's, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Well, and you go further than that in the book. You, you say that a will-only view of saving faith, a volition-only view of what's happening when we believe is, quote, deficient and for many, deadly. So right. unpack that. Unpack that for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, I mean it when I say deadly, I mean deficient, not a little bit, but uh, inadequate. A will only. In other words, if you stress a will decision, I now will to follow Jesus, or I now will to trust that he has forgiven my sins and I won't go to hell, but I'll go to heaven. That can happen without any new birth, without any change in the heart, without any alteration of the affections for Jesus. And what I've come to see is, I think the church, especially in certain parts of it, have many unbelievers who think they're saved. It's why the church is weak. It's why the church is ineffective in so many ways. It's why worship is so flat, uh, because there are a lot of unregenerate, non-born-again people in the church who've been taught that they are to make a decision, and so they decide to believe some doctrines and to believe that they are going to heaven and nothing has changed in their heart. And so I've tried to scour the Bible to find out, okay, is that saving faith? You know, Jesus said in, in Matthew uh, 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So if we can be praising him with our lips, singing hymns in church, uh, discussing the Bible in a Bible study, and our hearts be far from him. He says it's empty. I really think that means it's not worship. Hmm. And I would say it's not faith. So I'm very concerned for myself. I don't want to be an unbeliever thinking I'm a believer, and I don't want the church to have people in it who are uh, unwittingly false brothers because they think they've believed when they really haven't believed because they've been taught 
a wrong view of saving faith. Namely, you can simply will your way into new birth and and new life. Maybe a verse here would help. I've been so moved in recent years, just controlled in a sense, by 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, where, where Paul talks about uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, and then hear these crucial phrases, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So that's what Satan keeps unbelievers from seeing, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then the remedy is in verse 6 where he says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, I think what that means is when you become a Christian, a miracle happens in in a blind, dead heart And the essence of the miracle is that when you look at the gospel, when you look at the cross, what once looked boring or mythological or foolish now looks like glory. It looks sweet. It looks precious. It looks valuable. It looks like the most wonderful thing in the world. That's the miracle that happens. And if you teach that you can just decide for that, You've missed it. It's a Mm. miracle. God has to raise the dead. He has to open the eyes of the blind for us to see the gospel as glorious. Mm. I want to dig into what you call those affectional elements of saving faith. Um, that's, That's central to what you're saying here. But before we get into that, maybe just one clarification. So is there an element of the will? Is the will, though, involved in saving faith in your mind? Or... Is that completely misguided? No, no, it's not completely misguided at all. Choose you this day whom you shall serve is a, is a biblical command. And there's nothing wrong with telling people they must choose Christ. However, if you leave it at that, it's going to be misleading. Now, here's my, here's my understanding of the will. Um, I think the will is the faculty of the human soul that inclines or that prefers one thing over another. And it can choose something that it doesn't like at all. And it doesn't admire. Uh, And that's an act of will. Hmm. The will, when it inclines vigorously with all of its force— we call affection. So I, I, I prefer my wife over all other women. <laughs> That's on a small preference. I prefer life over death. In other words, the will can, can act without affection, and the will can act vigorously with affection. And I'm arguing in this book that if, if, the, if we try to turn saving faith into a willpower religion minus mm. its more vigorous exercises of preference, delight, treasuring, desire, admiration, then we are gutting the very essential element of faith that makes it saving. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the affections side of things. Uh, you use that word, you've already used it a couple times, our affections. Right. It's a word that those who know you, who have read you over the years, will be familiar with. They know where you're even getting, getting that word. Um, but for those who maybe are less familiar with that term, why why do you say affections? What do you mean by that? Why is that important? What I don't mean by affections is physical responses to bad or good news like trembling or sweaty palms or knocking knees or fluttering eyelashes or butterflies in the stomach. None of that is of any spiritual significance, and that's important to say. Second thing to clarify is that I, by, by affections, the way I'm using it in my theology and in the book, is not merely natural emotions— 
They are emotions. They are feelings. But they are spiritual, meaning the Holy Spirit awakens them. Hmm. They're the fruit of the Spirit. And they happen when we behold truth. We behold Christ and the gospel. And the Holy Spirit enables us to respond with our hearts in a way that is in somehow coherent with or fitting the worth of what we are feeling or seeing. So affections are uh, spiritual emotions in response to more or less correct sight of Christ and his worth and his work for us. So it goes be- Affections go beyond mere willpower, beyond mere decision, and involve the heart. It's what Jesus Mm. meant, I think, when he said, you're worshiping me with your lips, but your heart, that is, your affections, are far from me. Mm. I think probably the most common way that Christians would understand faith, if you were to ask them kind of on the street, out of the blue, would be something uh, along the lines of, you know, faith is this cognitive belief in the truth of the gospel and in what Jesus has done. And there's a, there's a willpower dynamic to that as well. I'm choosing now to follow Christ. Um, and then they would say that those affections that you just, you just explained, the idea of loving God, delighting in God, treasuring is a really key concept that you raise in the book. Um, those are the fruit of that faith. Those are the results of that faith rather than uh, integral to it itself. But that, that's, you, you want to make the case that those are not merely fruit of faith. Those are actually part of faith. Is that right? Yes. There are fruits of faith which are affectional. So I'm not denying that. Faith does result in many uh, changes in our minds and hearts that are affectional. However, I've come to see from numerous texts in Scripture that you cannot make that distinction and say, here is faith stripped of all affection, and it is still saving faith. And then it produces something. When I try to analyze, okay, what is saving? What is saving? And I see that it is a Believing, then it's defined in John one twelve as a receiving uh, to those he who to those who received him, comma who believed in his name. So faith is a receiving, and then I say, receiving as what? Well, receiving as savior, receiving as Lord, receiving as bread from heaven, receiving as living water, receiving as light, receiving as friend, receiving as my righteousness, receiving as wisdom, receiving as treasure. And with every one of those glorious realities that Christ is, I ask now, so what is it like to receive him as that treasure? And I've come to the conclusion that 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 phrase— Receive Christ as involves an actual affectional dimension Mm. to the receiving. It's not added on. It is the way we receive. So I speak about—maybe it would be helpful to say—I don't talk about treasure, Christ as a treasure, as another— reality like he's savior and he's lord and Mm. he's treasure and you receive him in those three offices no 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 i don't take treasure as an office rather treasure is what marks his saviorhood his lordship his being bread his being living water his being my righteousness his being wisdom i receive his him as a treasured friend, a treasured righteousness, a treasured Savior, a treasured Lord. And if you leave out that treasured and say, you can receive him minus treasuring that reality, I think you've become utilitarian and you're using him. Mm. You're using him. You're not receiving him for what he is. You're receiving him as a tool 
to get out of heaven or to get some relief from guilt feelings or to get rich because he offers himself as a prosperity giver. You're just using him. And if there's no dimension of treasuring Christ for who he is in his being treasure, his being Lord, his being Savior, I don't think it's saving faith. Mm. So I, I, don't, I haven't been able to go that way of saying, you've got this thing called faith, and then you've got these fruits yeah. called treasuring him, or admiring him, or delighting in him, or taking pleasure in him, or being satisfied in him. I don't think it's possible to, to slice it that way. Let me, mm. let me give you one more verse that's on my mind right now that might, might help. So Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, there's a parallel. Comes to me shall never hunger. Believes in me shall never thirst. So that parallel says believing in Jesus' mind here is a coming to him so as to drink from him and never thirst. So here's, here's John 737. Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I think the connection between come to me and drink and believe in me and, and rivers will go out are the same thing. Mm, I yeah. think in John's vocabulary, if you say to somebody, come, believe, believe on Jesus, I want you to be saved, what you mean is there's a fountain here. It's flowing with all satisfying living water. Come, drink. That's the way you do evangelism. Hmm. So one concern that someone might have in this is that this view of faith then locates our assurance of salvation squarely on how we're feeling about God uh, day by day. So, so how would you respond to that concern that if someone embraces this, that then they're constantly kind of taking their temperature in terms of their affections for God and maybe always wondering, oh, today I, I feel cold towards God. Does that mean I don't really have faith? How, how would you answer that? Well, I would answer it in numerous ways. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that the problem of the ups and downs of emotions is the very same problem as the ups and downs of faith for a person who doesn't agree with me. Okay, so a person says, Piper, I think you're all wrong. I don't think faith has in it any of that affectional stuff because that makes it too volatile. I would say, you're telling me that your faith doesn't go up and down? Like, you get up every morning and you feel totally uh, trustful of Jesus and your faith is strong and growing and it never wavers. And I think they'd say, if they were honest, well, no, actually, there are weak faith days and strong faith days. I said, okay, okay, we're on the same page. We got the same problem. You and I have the same problem. Your faith goes up and down. My affections go up and down. We're both fighting the same battle. <clears throat> and I'm going to say then, the fight for assurance is a fight for joy. It is. Just like the fight for faith is a fight for faith. It's a fight for strong faith. Now, um, I don't like the way you... Um, <laughs> and described my view or described the statement that uh, assurance, what you say, rests squarely on or something like that. I, I, I want to say, okay, it does rest on faith, and now faith is affectional, and so it does rest on knowing and believing that I have um, a treasuring of Christ that ranks him above mother and father. Because Jesus said, if you don't love me more than your mother and father, you don't belong to me. I can't get away from that. That's real. I have to fight for that. I have to treasure him more than I treasure my wife and my children and my mother and father. Otherwise, I'm not a Christian. That's truth right out of Matthew 10, 37. So I'm going to say, 
note, it don't say it just like that, because the fight for assurance is not just fought by taking my temperature, whether the temperature is the temperature of faith or the temperature of affections. It's not. It's fought by looking at Christ, the cross, and the sufficiency of his work for me. It's fought by crying out for the work of the Holy Spirit in in Romans 8, where it says, the, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. God is my Father. I cry out, Abba, Father. When I cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And Jesus says, I mean, Paul said, uh, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So I cry out, oh God, grant me to say Jesus is Lord with all the intensity and authenticity I can have. So the battle for assurance is the same battle, I think, for all of us. Namely, we we have to look away from our bellies, right? Mm. We're not navel gazers. That'll never work. Whether we're staring at faith or staring at affections, it won't work. Because if you take your eyes off Jesus, you're going to go down. And so you, you stare at the cross and you pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, Matt, in the end, oh, goodness, I, I, I suppose in my ministry, after preaching, when I stood there for an hour before I went home for lunch, praying with people, the most common issue was assurance. Hmm. I think in 33 years I could say that. And they would tell me all kinds of stories of, about how, how it's hard for them to maintain assurance. And in the end, when I've given them all the objective evidences I can point them to for the refreshment and authentication of their faith, I said to them, you know, in the end, it is a gift. It really is a gift. And you should ask for it. By all means, use the means that God has given for the maintenance of faith and assurance. But in the end, you can't make yourself feel anything. You can't make yourself feel assured. And so we we plead to God to work that in me. I pray that to this day. I'm, mm. I'm an old man. I won't live forever. And I know that in those last days when I get sick and my mind can't do all that it needs to do to maintain a fight of faith, I'm going to need some miracle work of the Holy Spirit to preserve my assurance when Satan says, you've been a fake all along, Piper. Mm. I was going to ask that if if that is part of why, going back to earlier in our conversation, why we so often conceive of faith as a decision, as uh, a choice that we make, uh, is, is there something to the fact that we, we don't really believe often that faith is a gift, that this is something that God is working within us. It's not something we're, we're doing. Absolutely. I mean, if you were to ask me um, why why this book feels so urgent to you. One of the primary reasons would be that we live in a world, and we've lived in this world for a couple hundred years, but we've li- we live in a world where the air we breathe is now called, what's it called? Uh, um, expressive individualism is the current phrase, but it is a wash in the right and power of the human will to make ourselves what we want to be. So I can make myself a woman, right? That's the most uh, lavish, crazy, insane, recent idea. I can just make myself another sex. But it's always been there. I can make myself a Christian. I must have the power within me to make myself a Christian. America is a free will-driven culture, meaning I have ultimate control over my destiny. I'm the captain of my fate. That's all heresy. We don't have ultimate control over our fate. God does. And I think uh, the whole milieu, say, since... 
Charles Finney especially has been, I've got to control this. I've got to be able to control whether I become a Christian and I have to be able to control in my evangelism to be able to make Christians, which means you have to reduce it to a decision. Because if you take Piper's idea, which I hope is biblical, and include affections in it, you lose control. Because you can't make it happen. Mm. I can make myself walk down an aisle. I can make myself sign a card. I can make myself ascribe to a, a confession of faith. I can do all that. That's in my power. And Americans believe reality and destiny should be in our power. And so come along with this crazy notion that it's a miracle and a gift that I am a believer. You're going to get a lot of resistance and a lot of twisting there. So, yeah, mm. I, I think— one one of my concerns, one of my desires for the book is to really make clear it is a miracle. And and what what praise and glory goes to God when people wake up to that. You you can't praise God for amazing grace the way you should if you think you were the decisive power at the moment of your conversion. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you seems like you you take pains in the book it was very evident to me that you were working hard to make this come through and it's come through in our conversation today is that you are trying to uh, synthesize what you're seeing in scripture what scripture teaches about saving faith speak to that a little bit where the the impetus for uh, this emphasis is coming from as you look at scripture well let me go back to Matthew ten thirty seven. When I read, when Jesus says, uh, anyone who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I'm just flabbergasted. I'm just stunned. Because what he's saying there, because he used the word love, right? If, if you, he's making the, the issue of discipleship the issue of love. If, if my affections for Jesus, and it is affections, it's not obedience, it's affections because he's talking about loving son, loving daughter, loving mother, loving wife. And those, those are not just like, obey them, but rather, I cherish them. They're my family. You have to cherish Jesus more than you cherish them, or you're not worthy of him. You're not a Christian. Those are the kind of texts that just, over time, made me realize, can you just paste that on to this thing called saving faith? No. And then, and then I read in Matthew 13, 44. I mean, it's a little, little teeny parable. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Now, that parable, I think, says... Coming into the saving reign of Jesus as your King, your Lord, your Savior, coming into that reality is like finding a treasure and with joy selling everything you have, which means something really dramatic has happened in your heart. Mm. So it's, it's text after text like that. And the ones in John 6 and John 7 and John 4, the woman at the well there where Jesus is talking to her about living water. All these texts present saving faith in varied descriptions of receiving treasure. Mm. So you're receiving living water or you're receiving uh, the bread of heaven, or you're receiving the light of the world, or you're receiving a treasure hidden in a field, or you're receiving a Savior who forgives you for all your sins, you're receiving a, a Lord who fights for you and brings you home safely, and on and on and on through the New Testament. Saving faith is a receiving of all that God is for us in Jesus. In fact, that phrase right there, being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, is the phrase I used over and over again in the book Future Grace. I published Future Grace in 1995. And so what I've been doing ever since 1995 is trying to defend that statement. Mm. This book is the end of that pilgrimage. I was going to ask about that. Is, has your view of saving faith changed over the years? Oh, my. Yes. I mean, I grew up, right? 
in a in a in a milieu of decisionism, and uh, only over time did it. Well, it came in stages. For example, one of the stages was the lordship controversy, way back in the eighties, where John MacArthur writes the book. Uh, the, the Gospel of According to Jesus, I think it was called. I thought it was a great book. And in it, he defended that you can't be a Christian if Jesus is not your Lord. Well, you got this whole crowd saying, well, that's not grace, that's works. <coughs> and I looked at that and I thought, no, don't, that's what it says. That's what the Bible says, which means I had to make some adjustments in mm. just deciding that he's my Savior. So my first step is, okay, I'll decide that he's my Lord. But now I've kind of reduced saving faith to a, a mixture of doing what he says. Well, that's not the idea at all. And so I, I came through various steps of looking at the text to see this. The reason um, God chose faith as the path into justification is because faith is the unique act of the soul which receives Christ. It doesn't do anything for Christ, right? There is, there's no works mingled in our uh, saving faith at all. No works. How can that be? Well, Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my uh, perfection my obedience, and he offers himself to me. Well, what do you do when you have an offer? You receive it. That's John 1, 12. To as many as received him who believed in his name. So believing is a, is a receiving. It, it, my my uh, heart is a receiving heart, and thus Christ gets all the glory for being my righteousness, because I'm receiving him, not performing for him. And that's why God ordained that faith be the instrument of justification. Now, what I'm saying is, yes, yes, and Christ also wants to be glorified in the act of saving faith, not only as my righteousness, but as my treasure. So my receiving is a treasuring receiving. It doesn't cease to be a receiving, but it's a treasuring receiving. And thus I call attention to the worth of Christ and not just the usefulness of Christ and getting me out of hell, but the worth of Christ as my all-satisfying treasure. So yeah, my, mm. my understanding of faith and my experience of it, I think, has, has grown over the years. And, and let me say this, because that might sound like Oh, I, you really weren't a Christian at age six. <laughs> but here's the, here's the amazing thing, and we, we really need to say this. Um, J.I. Packer said it so, so well that, that, that we're saved by justification by faith, not by the doctrine of justification by faith. Mm. Meaning, meaning, if I trust in Christ, my conception in my head of what's happening in that could be all screwy because I was taught by somebody in a wrong way and the reality in my heart might be right. Mm. I think that's true about me. Like I was a Christian from age six to age 76 and I think my understanding of that reality has gone through changes but the reality was reality all along. Mm. Mm. Do you view what you're saying now about saving faith as a pressing in or a pressing further along the same line as the lordship salvation controversy? Do you do you see this kind of connection there? Um, yes, I, I I think there's an organic connection. Um, I I think I'm saying something more than uh, MacArthur said in his uh, book then, and more than uh, Wayne Grudem ha has said, because he's written strongly against this, uh, what is it called, grace only or something like that. that a free resists, grace theology. Yeah, free grace theology. Yeah, yeah, Crossway published that, didn't they? Um, that's, that's a good book. But I think I'm, I'm going beyond 
by stressing that it's not yet clear when we say to somebody, Jesus must be your Lord as well as your Savior. It's not yet clear that that embrace of lordship and embrace of saviorhood is an affectional reality. Mm. Now, I, I, I've not talked to either of those brothers. Well, actually, I have. I, I sent Wayne my, my uh, manuscript, and, and Wayne said, well, you got to be careful now that, <laughs> because this could be construed in the wrong way. Um, and I, I think he would be okay with what I mean by it. He's just worried that there might be some misunderstandings, which no doubt there will be because I've seen them already. So, yes, I think, I think there's a continuum, and it's a, it's a good step in the right direction to insist on the lordship of Christ and not simply treat Jesus as a, a deliverer from sin but not a good counselor for your life. So, you know, the way I used to say it to young people that would help them grasp what I mean, I would say, do you think you have a, a saving relationship with Jesus if you embrace him as a very competent, loving, rescuer, deliverer, savior from sin and hell, but you think he's a really lousy, incompetent, foolish counselor with regard to your sex life? Are you willing to trust him as a counselor with your sex life? And I, I've had people say, hmm, hmm. Well, that, that doesn't sound like saving faith to say, <laughs> I trust him to get me out of hell, but I don't trust him to guide my sex life. No, it's not. And, uh, and, and I would, I'm, I'm going further to say that trust, that trust of him as a counselor for your sex life has in it a treasuring, oh, he is a good and satisfying friend and counselor when it comes to all the aspects of my life. Hmm. So for those who have read the book and maybe friends of yours who have expressed you know, a uh, uh, concern or a hesitation, would you say that the the issue there would be they're not really understanding what you're saying, or maybe they're quibbling with how you're saying something, but the substance is there in agreement? For some, that's the case, for sure, that they, I, I think we would see eye to eye if we spent long enough clarifying terms. You know, I, I used Jay I. Packer as an example of that at the beginning when I said, Packer doesn't even like the word experience to describe saving faith. I said, well, <laughs> I'm going to use experience all the time. And I think if Packer were here and we could talk it through, he would understand my use of the word experience and his use of the word experience um, are different. And therefore, we just, if we could decide on the same definition, then we wouldn't have a substantial agreement. So with, I think, a lot of people who are going to you know, furrow their brow, maybe, when they read, if, if they penetrate through to what I mean, we mm. would not be in disagreement. However, that's not true for everybody. I know that in, in enough conversations that I've had, there are going to remain differences. Uh, some are going to say, for example, look, if you insist on using the word love for what is included in saving faith, you have inevitably contaminated faith with works because the demand for love is a demand for the law from the law. That'd be the simplest way to put the argument. Mm. And my answer to that is no, I'm not contaminating faith with works because the word love is used so many different ways in the Bible. And the way I'm choosing to use it, and I could point to numerous texts, is as treasuring. I'm not loving Jesus in the sense of whoever loves me must do everything that I say. Okay, so now you've got obedience to all his commandments included in faith. That's ridiculous. No way am I saying that or even implying that or drawing people into that. I'm saying what Jesus said, he who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And what that word means is treasure them, cherish them. Mm. If you treasure humans more than you treasure Jesus, then you are not a Christian. So that treasuring dimension of love is what I mean when I say that love for Jesus or for God is an integral component. But frankly, for those who've read the book, they know that's not the word I choose to key on because of that 
very possible misunderstanding. Rather, I settled on my definition of saving faith as a, a, uh, a receiving of Christ as a treasured Savior and a treasured Lord and all that God is for us in Him, hmm. treasured. So I am making explicit that treasuring is, is the key word. And, and the reason I did that is not just to avoid the misunderstanding, but because there are two texts— there's, there's the parable of Matthew uh, 13.44, where to be a Christian is to find a treasure hidden in a field. And the other one is in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, verse 7, right after he says that God enlightens our hearts to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is uh, in the face of Christ, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and so both Jesus and Paul give me warrant to use the noun treasure mm. for the, the gospel and the glory that we embrace, and then to simply turn the noun into a verb when we describe how one embraces or receives that. Mm-hmm. Maybe as a last question, John, core to your understanding of the Bible— uh, your work as a pastor for over three decades at your church, and even the ministry that you founded, Desiring God, uh, is this idea of Christian hedonism, uh, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so as a final question, how would you say that idea, that core idea of your whole life, fits with what you're saying now about saving faith? So what I mean by Christian hedonism is a a philosophy of life that grows out of the biblical insight that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And what grows out of that conviction, namely that God gets glory by our being satisfied, is that we ought to pursue satisfaction (laughs) in him. Which is why I call it hedonism, because, you know, the basic historic meaning of hedonism is a life devoted to the pursuit of pleasure. And that's exactly what my life is. (laughs) Psalm 1611 says, I'll show you the path of life. In my presence is fullness of joy. In In my right hand are pleasures forevermore. God said that to beckon us in to pursue him as the source of full and lasting Pleasure. So I'm on a crusade to get people to stop settling for two-bit yields of pleasure in this world and to go for broke and, and live their lives for maximum pleasure with, with God forever in heaven, which might cost you your life here on earth. Uh, he who hates his life will keep it, Jesus said. And I want to keep it because I want to be happy forever with God because he gets glory when I'm happy in him. Now, that's Christian hedonism. And what I've done in this book is show that God is so committed to that principle, he gets glory from my finding him as satisfying. He baked it right into the Christian life from the beginning. He, he didn't say, oh, that reality will kick in 10 years after you get saved. Mm. No, it doesn't kick in 10 seconds after you get saved. It is the miracle of salvation. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says that what happens in conversion is my blind eyes that regarded the jewel of the gospel as worthless— my blind eyes are opened, and I see in front of me a treasure, a jewel, and it is precious. It is satisfying. I'm at the end of my quest. He who comes to me will never thirst. I'm at the end of my quest. I find satisfaction in Christ crucified, risen, reigning, coming, saving, befriending. That's my life. That's my treasure. And that, I'm saying, 
is right at the heart of what saving faith is. So I think I said it a minute ago, but I'll say it again, that um, God ordained from all eternity that faith would be the means or the instrument by which we are reckoned righteous. So when we believe and do not work for our justification, we glorify the grace of God. We glorify grace by looking away from ourselves to the all-sufficiency of his justification by imputing Christ's righteousness to us. However, God aims to get more glory than being a sufficient sin forgiver or an efficient um, righteousness imputer. He means to get glory for being an all-satisfying treasure. And so he built that into saving faith as well. So saving faith embraces Christ as my righteousness, embraces Christ as my Lord, embraces Christ as my treasure, and in doing that, it is satisfied in him. And so we arrive at the basic statement of Christian hedonism, God is most glorified in me when I, in my saving faith, are most satisfied with all that he is for me in Jesus. Hmm. Thank you so much, John, for taking the time today to uh, explain uh, this vision of saving faith that you have and show us from the Bible where you see it. Uh, We appreciate it. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. That was John Piper on the true nature of saving faith. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, What is Saving Faith? Reflections on Receiving Christ as a Treasure. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.